Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we want to welcome you today uh, to another interesting and engaging show that's looking at current issues that are happening uh, locally in the region, around the state, in the country. And I want to encourage you too to listen if you're not able to get the signal uh, at 90.5 FM KTRL. You can also listen at tarletonradio.com and we are available after the show uh, with a recording on SoundCloud or wherever you download your podcast. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook that's on politics with Eric Morrow uh, where I upload related articles and other information on our shows each week, information about our, our the interviews we conduct and engaging articles that help to give you more information in engaging with the issues that we cover. So today I am very uh, glad to welcome Dr. Patrick Kelly, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Uh, Dr. Kelly's joining us today because we are returning to an issue that we've covered in previous weeks, looking at some uh, articles that were out there and other information on Civil War history, particularly related to statues. Uh, and as we know in our own area, uh, this is a, a major issue. It's being covered in the media about what is happening in, in the city of Weatherford in Parker County uh, related to the statue that is there. We've had protests, we've had votes, we've had uh, meetings and discussions. We, we've seen all kinds of things that are happening uh, with the statue that is on the courthouse uh, property being uh, the focal point. Dr. Kelly uh, comes to us uh, with um, uh, extensive uh, experience writing uh, academic work, scholarship in this area, having his PhD from New York University, uh, having also been a lecturer in social studies at Harvard College and a visiting professor at Tufts, and now at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And if you look at his uh, credentials, he has written much about Civil War history, uh, he teaches Texas history, he teaches Civil War history, and uh, we're just uh, excited to have you with us today to be able to really dig into this issue and look at some of the dynamics, uh, some of the, the challenges, um, not only, you know, right now what's going on, where this comes from, and what makes this such a, a controversial uh, issue where you have significant and very intense engagement by a number of people in trying to either protect uh, statues or to have them removed. So welcome, Dr. Kelly. Thank you. Um, I could feel my street cred declining as you talked about my uh, academic history. I just want to let everyone know I grew up in Austin. Um, uh, I'm a proud graduate of the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, as it so happens, I have a great, great, great that actually fought on the Confederate side uh, during the Civil War. He died of strep throat uh, in about 1862. So I'm not all East Coast coming down to tell Texans what to think. There you go. Okay. And, and, uh, and well, well, we can understand that in this household. I'm a, I'm a Baylor grad and my wife is a UT grad. So I, I can uh, uh, understand and, and know that and, and certainly having grown up in Texas myself, but have lived on the East Coast, I know that uh, you can certainly combine uh, uh, the best of academia with that personal experience, certainly in this state, and be able to offer some insight. So I, I really appreciate you being on today to do that. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think one of the things that, that we, our place to start with this, and this is where sometimes in the conversation on these statues and in the debate about it, uh, especially in public forums that we don't see. And that's, that's going back and looking at why these came to be. Why, why do we have uh, these uh, statues in, in various places, especially when we look at these that are uh, somewhat generic They're of a, of a Confederate soldier. They're not necessarily identified as an individual, even though we have a lot of, of statuary across the South that's, that's identified. Uh, but uh, part of it is understanding what's what's the history. Why were these put there, and what what were the what was the intention by those who did that? Could you enlighten us a little bit on that? Well, over the last generation or so, there's been uh, an intensive study on Civil War monuments and the significance of Civil War monuments, um, and there's con a consensus that's developed around these monuments. First of all. 
Um, as in Weatherford, which is of course the kind of the hot topic today, uh, there was a spike in the building of Civil War monuments between 1900 and about 1920, uh, the end of World War One. And historians have wondered why that is. It wasn't like there weren't monuments built before or, or 1900 or, or after 1920. The latest monument I think was built in 2011. But why during those two decades? And the historical consensus is this, that what you had by 1900 was the implementation of Jim Crow laws. Uh, that created a strict segregation between African-Americans and whites. This, uh, it, it happened at different times uh, uh, in the South, but let's just say as a marker by about 1900, something that we're all aware of, the separate water fountains having to ride in the back of a railroad car, um, that had become implemented. Also, African-Americans had largely been stripped of their voting rights, uh, rights that had been um, earned by African Americans and recognized in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So the historical consensus now is, is that the building of Confederate monuments after 1900 is kind of a visual representation of the white supremacy that had taken place legally uh, uh, about this time after the Reconstruction era and uh, the decade or so after Reconstruction when African-Americans still had uh, some voting rights. So this is the consensus now. This is the, it's very interesting that there's the spike during this period. Also, this is a side issue and it's not such a hot issue. It's just kind of interesting. There was a, a, a Civil War monument industry in Texas. Uh, there was a man by the name of Frank Teich, uh, who actually uh, is the father of the Texas granite industry. He discovered uh, uh, granite outside of Llano, but it was a it was a um, it was an industry as well. And um, in many cases, as in the case of Weatherford, the agent behind the building of these monuments were the uh, Daughters of the Confederacy. And um, what had happened is, is that Daughters of the Confederacy, this is what historians argue, and I think it's very convincing, they had decided that they were going to shape the memory of the Civil War. That they were going to take, they were going to be active agents in creating a remembrance of the Civil War that had nothing to do with African-Americans, that had nothing to do with slavery. So a fairly benign memory of the Civil War. And again, this is key, the timing, it's, it's post-Jim Crow. So you had uh, throughout Texas, uh, and this was a, a way that also white Texas women could go into the public sphere. Uh, that they could become political at a, at, a, at a time when women were really supposed to be at home uh, because of the, this idea of domestic fear, sphere versus public sphere. So you had uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy, which I think is true in the case of the Weatherford statue, which by the way, I th think wasn't built until the 1920s. Um, um, but nonetheless, it was started around this time creating this benign memory of the Civil War that erased the memory of slavery, that erased the memory of treason, uh, states leaving the Union because they were unhappy about the outcome of a lawful election. And I think it's also very significant that these statues are, as the one in Weatherford, they're, they're in front of courthouses. And basically, this is the consensus. It's a consensus that I agree with. What you had was, um, this was saying that African-Americans would not have a fair shot at equality before the law. Because even today in Weatherford, if you're African-American, you have to walk by the statue of someone 
who was fighting to keep slavery alive. And so the location of these statues in, in front of courthouses is also a very important signifier of white supremacy in the era of Jim Crow. On that, on that note too, and because that would that would help us to see how these become so polarizing, if that that motivation was there, I, I think when we look at it and we kind of bring that forward, and if you if, if you have those connections of those that are opposed to the monuments with their uh, what they symbolized or what they stand for or the era that they stand for, um, I think one of the things I I've struggled with, and I've tried to maybe explain this, and with my limited background as a as, as somewhat of an identity issue of, of, of people who identify with that, not, not so much maybe with their understanding of the past and the Civil War and so on, but with uh, this is where I grew up, this is something that has been memorialized. Uh, you know, some would go off into the, I've had friends and colleagues who grew up in Texas saying, you know, the that, that lost cause ideology influenced them. I, I didn't have that in my upbringing as much. Uh, it, I think it was in my family, but, but I wonder if you had some insight into that then as to how these different groups, either you know, for or against, keeping or removing, and, 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 and how, they're, how they're really connecting with this. Uh, another way, I think one question I had raised uh, weeks ago was, you know, if the statues could speak, if people could hear what the particular views or ideology of that person was today, would they still associate with that? Uh, and, and what does draw them to that and connect them to that? Well, growing up in Texas, um, I, I, I know the feeling of identifying with the Confederacy. I think Faulkner said something like, uh, William Faulkner, that for every um, young white male uh, you know, Pickett's charge is, is something that you think about. Um, and it's, it's kind of very exciting. Um, but I, so I know that experience of, of, of identity being um, fused with the Confederacy. Um, but what, what, anyway, is a Done, dug deeper into it um, and, and looked deeper into it, and I think also matured a little bit as, as a citizen, there are just issues that you can't escape. You, you can't escape slavery. You, you can't escape white supremacy. You can't escape Jim Crow. And so I understand how identity gets fused with this vision of history because I felt it myself. But at some point, I think as a society, we have to mature, we have to grow up, we have to be able to look the past in the eye. Um, one of the things that's very interesting to me, and you, you know, you, as a Civil War historian, you, you, you hear about this a, a lot, that by taking down the statues, you're taking away history, you're taking away memory. One of the things I, I wanna stress, I mentioned it again uh, earlier, what, the, what the, the daughters of the Confederacy were trying to do, they were trying to shape a memory of the past. They were trying to shape a memory that erased slavery. That, and also they were very, very forward looking during the same period that these uh, statues are being built. They are, uh, uh, they're writing textbooks that valorizes the Confederacy textbooks that probably you and I uh, were both affected by, although it would have been different, right? I, I, I was a kid in the 60s. Uh, there, there, there's a, um, a valorization of, of terror groups such as the KKK. And so when folks talk about memory, um, there's a, there's a, there was a shape, these statues are an attempt to shape memory. Memory is not just one thing, it can be shaped. One of the important aspects of these statues are how do you shape a memory of the Confederacy? What is included in your memory? What is excluded? 
in the memory. And what's excluded in these statues, uh, and it can't be said enough, are, are the horrors of slavery and the fact that the Confederacy was a revolt against an election that was a legal election. Can I, can I just say one thing about uh, the issue of whether or not um, the Civil War was about slavery? Do you mind? Oh, sure. Go right ahead, please. Please. So you often hear, and, and I read some of the articles about Weatherford, folks saying that the Civil War is not about slavery, okay? I would just invite your listeners to go on the internet, or if you don't trust the internet, go to the state archives. And there's the Ordinance of Secession, February 2nd, uh, 1861. It's the causes of secession. And it's the Texas Secession Convention explaining why it's leaving the union. And what it says is that, and this is a document, you can go read it for yourself, that the US government was established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their posterity, and that the African race had no agency in this establishment. African-Americans, it didn't say African-Americans, uh, it probably said Negroes, were rightfully, and this is where the quote begins, were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior independent race. The servitude of the African race is mutually beneficial to both bond and free, i.e. slave and free, and is abundantly authorized and justified by the experience of mankind and the revealed will of the almighty creator. So if you look at this ordinance of secession, it's all about fear of emancipation. It's just to say that Texas left the union uh, and that slavery was not central to Texas leaving the union is like saying two plus two equal 84. Yes, definitely. And, and uh, uh, I, I cringe sometimes when I read those things in terms of people doing their their research and kind of looking back at this and trying to understand that. And, and that also relates then to how this becomes such a political issue uh, in that people don't understand uh, some of those uh, critical ideas, those things that shaped and influenced. So I, I go back with that to the Daughters of the Confederacy and you, you mentioned about their own engagement in society and, and this was something that they could do in the uh, in, in the in the uh, public realm uh, the, the statement in relation to memory bringing that forward then because this has become very political now and this is a show on politics so we you know we, we want to bring the history in but also look at it that way when you read the some of the articles especially about the the meeting of the commissioner's court this past week and, and you, you see political leaders being informed much more by how many phone calls they had from constituents rather than uh, looking at these kinds of, of critical issues. Um, where, where, do you see, where do you see some of the challenges going forward with this? Since it, it has become very much a, a, a political issue in, in that way and you don't have people engaging with this kind of intent and purpose for why the monuments were put there and what should be maybe guiding us, I think, in, in determining what should be done with them. Well, uh, in preparation for this interview, I looked at the demography of Weatherford and I think it's about 80% white, uh, maybe 14% um, Latinx as we say today, and I think maybe less than 5% African-American. And um, so my guess is the county commissioners uh, are um, sympathetic to the idea that the monument is a benign um, uh, representation of, of history. And um, it seems to me they're not really sensitive to the, the white supremacist origins uh, of the monuments. And so where do we go from here? Um, I don't know. I, I, it's kind of a miracle that no one was killed uh, last week uh, with, with all the 
the the guns that were in play. Um, thank God, Weatherford. It, it could have been really a symbol of hate. Uh, mm -hmm. The people of Weatherford very very lucky. Uh, or maybe you can, you can give them credit. Maybe they were disciplined in the use of their firearms. But where do we go? It, it's hard to say. Um, I don't think we'll probably go anywhere anytime soon. Um, I think demography will will tell that much of Texas. Um, I think I always tell my students the secret to Texas is diversity, how diverse Texas is. Um, Weatherford seems a little less diverse. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't think anything's going to happen uh, anytime soon. I don't think uh, the commissioners are going to have a conversion like St. Paul and, you know, fall off their horses. Um, I think they, they're, they'll be voted out of office. It seems pretty right. clear to me. Um, so, you know, I, so I, I don't see anything happening in Weatherford uh, anytime soon, but, but it's sad because Weatherford looks like such a beautiful and historic town and it just, um, it's on the, the folks that are supporting the statue, they're just on the wrong side of history. Well, in, in that regard as well, it, it's, um, uh, there, there's some, some challenges here because it's, how, how, do you, uh, how do you adapt, how do you change in, in an appropriate way? So there's been a lot of debate about um, uh, what should be done with these statues and, and, and monuments. I, I gave the example a few weeks ago of looking at Stone Mountain and one of the, in Georgia, and one of the reasons that uh, uh, a, uh, a state legislator said, look, it, it would cost us millions of dollars to, to change the facade of that, of that mountain in any way. And so how do we interpret and frame this in the appropriate way. And I, and I know uh, historians have, have offered different views on this or debated on that. I was wondering if you had some, some thoughts on things like that of where, you know, the, the part of the debate in Weatherford was, well, should it be moved to a pu another public place? Uh, and then of course there was the concern that it might be damaged or defaced or something, or uh, no, it needs to be moved to a private location. Um, do you have, have any, any thoughts on that in terms of what these represent and how they connect to an era and a period in the past and, and helping to understand that or engage with that in some way going forward. Well, you know, I do have a lot of expertise, but I don't know how much it costs to, to remove these things. It seems like they get removed all the time though, these days. Right. And uh, so it, it seems like it could, could be done. You know, the, uh, I know there was an issue about ownership. Who owns the who owns the statues? Is it the county or the daughters or whatever? But um, what happened in San Antonio? There was a, a Confederate statue um, that was moved to um, a Confederate cemetery, and it was kind of sweet. The H.E. Christmas tree was put on the pedestal uh, where that statue was, and. I don't know if this is true, but I would guess there's a Parker County Historical Society. Uh, the statue could be moved there. Um, it could be used to facilitate a discussion with the, the kids in public school uh, in Weatherford about questions about memory, about slavery, about the Civil War. I have to say, I don't think it would be that expensive it's just a question of will. And um, right now it's clear that the, the will is, is not there. Yes, uh, uh, I see that. It, it, it reminds me, I, in, in 2008, I was in, in uh, Russia and uh, spent some time in Moscow uh, and then uh, uh, in, in a few other places. Uh, uh, it went to Ekaterinburg, which is in the Ural Mountains. And in Moscow, you know, after uh, after the fall of communism, all of the the things related to Lenin uh, and 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 much of the Soviet era, the monuments, those were all moved. They were thrown into graveyard. You know, they had what we call statuary graveyards, where they just put it all in there, or they went to museums. Right. I went to Ekaterinburg in the in the Ural Mountains, and here is a place that kind of prides itself in bucking what Moscow 
tells it to do. And this came from the words of the governor there. But all of the statuary, the statue of Lenin is still there. Uh, the great symbol for the Great War is still there. All of the Soviet era uh, monuments. And, and it, but in asking people about this, the, it, it, it's a kind of an issue now where they, they, they have those things there, but they do as they've always done and they just ignore them. When they were put there to begin with, there, were, there was already animosity and so on. And, and so it, it, it never really, they've, they've had some discussion and debate about removing them, but it's, it's a part of a square now, or it's the, the statue of Lenin or, or where all the young people come out at night and smoke cigarettes, you know, and just, uh, and, right. and socialize. Um, I, in this issue, I, I don't see this happening in, in that way. I mean, the, the, the fact that um, there, were, there was not the, the, the presence there when these were put in place that would have created tensions at that time is that now we're looking at an era and of time in our country where when these issues of racial justice uh, come to the forefront, these these monuments and statues come back into the into the debate. And sometimes we see, as we've seen in the months past, where things have been pulled down in places or moved, and in other places not. And I, I just wonder, from my perspective on the political side of it, and and maybe the cost too, is that. This is this is ongoing. I mean, we're just going to see this uh, come up and up again, and maybe even more frequently. And and it's going to be a, a, a tremendous source of of tension within communities that, as we see in Weatherford, may be exacerbated by groups coming in from outside and making it a focal point because they're trying to get something accomplished. Uh, I don't know if you well, yeah, that assessment. Yeah I, was, yeah, I was also struck by the role of social media. Mm -hmm. uh, and ginning up the uh, the controversy and, uh, and the tension over this, um, but you know, here's this is my guess, and this is someone that again grew up in in Texas. I think most whites walking don't even uh, pay attention to that statue, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think they go and uh, pray to it or anything like that. But again, if you're African American and you're on trial. Uh, are you going into the courthouse and, and you see a statue of, of someone uh, who presumably was fought to, to keep you um, enslaved, you're not going to ignore the statue. So I think what, what's happened is, is that whites were able to kind of ignore the statue for a century since it was built. But I think if you're non-white, uh, even you know Mexican-American, um, it's much more sinister, right? I, I think for whites it's benign and for non-whites it's sinister. And um, until the white community can understand why a statue like that would look sinister to non-whites, uh, I don't think there's gonna be much forward movement. And I think in many cases, uh, in this case in particular, uh, demography is destiny. Um, it, it, Weatherford is so overwhelmingly white. Um, and my guess is that a large percentage of the whites, I, I don't want to say everybody, um, uh, is uh, uh, sympathetic to the memory of the Confederacy, or at least indifferent. And then now it's gotten entangled with the politics of the day, right? Mm -hmm. right. Uh, with the presidential election. And so I think we're kind of at a loggerheads now, but we'll see, you know, we'll see where we are five or, or 10 years from now. This is, the statue will be removed. It's just a question of when. Right. And, and I think we've already seen some cases where demographic change has already happened in the state. And when you get people who are much more, or communities that are much more reflective of diversity, these issues do uh, move, some things move forward, uh, and uh, and we're certainly that that change. Uh, it's just amazing. We're working on a a, a policy uh, textbook for Texas, and it's just looking at demographic issues. It's just amazing the impact that it's having, and that it will. Well, I I, I want to thank you for joining us today. I mean, this is uh, your insight and your your background, and looking at the history of this is is very helpful, and I think it'll be helpful to our listeners and understanding the different facets and complexity uh, of this issue uh, as I think I don't think it's going away anytime soon I think we're going to see uh, continue to see these kinds of, of issues 
Um, oh, just to kind of in closing here, um, where where do you see that is a a, a kind of a, a a ground for discussion about these issues that is is beneficial to communities like this that may may see the, this kind of debate and tension ongoing? Uh, it, sometimes in the political forums, it becomes more of uh, about politics. You have constituents. You you don't you want to be reelected. Uh, you may not be as well versed in the history of this and understanding its impact. But but we've got to have have more inf, uh, engagement and, and discussion and conversations about this. And and I don't know uh, what experiences you may have had or have seen uh, that that in, that encourage that in keeping within you know the rule of law within respect for other people, for a forum in which ideas can be shared. But on this issue of monuments and uh, statues, uh, have you seen places where this has happened? Yeah, it's it's hard to find that kind of a neutral space, right? Uh, certainly the commissioner's meeting didn't seem like a neutral space. Um, I think if, I don't think schools would be neutral. I think teachers would be heavily criticized by parents. Um, maybe churches, mm -hmm. the, the, the community churches, that, that might be really the only place that I could see where you could, where folks could talk to each other um, um, in, in kind of a sacred space, this political question and kind of a, a sacred space. Um, other than that, uh, we live in such polarized times um, that it's it's difficult to see where you could find just even neutral ground to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. um, but if if ministers wanted to get involved, but it might this might even be too hot for ministers. You know, they may not want to touch it. People are pretty dug in. It seems like um, uh, in Weatherford. Uh, so I'm not really very optimistic about. Uh, dialogue right now. Um, but if things kind of cool off in the country, uh, uh, maybe a year or two down the road, uh, there might there might be spaces created for for discussions uh, about these these issues. Well, very good. Well, thank you again, Dr. Kelly. We appreciate your time today and joining us here on, on politics. And uh, I will in, uh, include a link on our Facebook page to uh, the work that you've done. And so if others want to connect with that and, and learn more about, about this and other issues that you've researched, uh, then they'll be able to do so. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, everybody stay safe. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Ever find yourself wishing you didn't have to miss your favorite radio show? Well, wish no more because KTRL 90.5 FM is now streaming online. Tune in to catch your favorite broadcasts and shows live right at home from your computer or mobile device. To listen, please visit tarletonradio.com or click listen live at ktrl.fm. Part-time job, full-time hustle, all-time shiro to all of us. You nurture, we listen. You teach, we thrive. You lift our spirits, but we've got to lay down the truth. It's time for you, our Shiro, to stretch for the stars. Start saving more for retirement now so you can feel prepared and live your life to the fullest. Get free tips to help boost your retirement savings now at aceyourretirement.org Shiro. A message brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back to On Politics right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. And we want to thank again Dr. Patrick Kelly for joining us today. He is Associate Professor uh, in the Department of History at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And as he said, growing up in Texas, 
and engaging with some of these issues and now of course being a noted author and scholar uh, in the area of civil war. So I hope you found that uh, very engaging and helpful as we I think on my part that this issue is going to be with us. And I did want to just offer my commentary a few weeks ago uh, on this uh, under the title, If the Statues Could Speak. I'd invite you to go back and listen to that on SoundCloud, uh, but also to have someone of his caliber on the show uh, to be able to go into uh, the background, the history, the, the, the motivations behind uh, putting some of these monuments in place, especially uh, the one in Weatherford that has been uh, such a, a point of focus and, and controversy. Uh, that's part of what we do here on, on politics is to uh, bring you quality interviews uh, with people who have given uh, significant attention and engagement with these issues. And just to give you a preview coming up in the weeks ahead, uh, I am working to get interviews from a couple of policy centers and think tanks in Texas looking ahead at the 2021 legislative session. So, of course, we all know the state budget will be uh, up front and center in, those, in that session, but there's also other policy areas that we see that are developing or issues that are going to be given attention, and I want to get the experts, the policy experts on this show uh, to give you more uh, insight into some of the critical issues that they see will be coming forward uh, in the next legislative session. Of course, we've got to get through an election uh, coming up, uh, which will impact uh, the makeup of our state legislature, as well as Congress, as well as the White House. And so we'll be giving attention to that as well. In the last part of the show today, the second segment, I do want to give some attention uh, to the passing of a civil rights icon and hero, John Lewis. Uh, this past week, we saw the uh, the memorial to him as he lay in state in the nation's capital, as well as the funeral service uh, that was held. And there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to bring to your attention and just reflecting uh, on the life of this man that I have admired very much uh, in terms of his service, in terms of his commitment, in terms of his spirit, uh, his love of this country, but also uh, his love of freedom and equality. And one of the things that, that I, I tied to this very uh, quickly is something in the recent past, and that was a few years ago, I was able to take a group of faculty and students uh, on a study U.S. program where we went for a week. It was spring break, and we went for a week and, and stayed in Atlanta. And while we were there, we visited the National Center for uh, Civic and Human, Civil and Human Rights, which I would encourage you to do. It's right downtown Atlanta. Uh, it's an amazing place uh, that focuses on the civil rights era in this country, uh, the challenging time that it was, the, the, uh, the, just the, the critical issues, the, the sacrifices, the, uh, the engagement of people all over this country, and especially African-Americans, especially someone like John Lewis, who, who worked alongside uh, Martin Luther King and others to advocate for civil and voting rights. Uh, but also, we had the opportunity uh, to go to Selma. And in Selma, with a group, we visited the National Voting Rights Museum, uh, which was a, a unique opportunity, uh, not only to visit the museum, but the curator of the museum uh, was a young boy uh, at the time of uh, the march to Selma. And so he was, uh, he had just this, this amazing memory of those events and the opportunities uh, that he had as, as a, a young boy and then growing up uh, around uh, the people and the leadership uh, of that time period. Uh, we also, in our time there, not just in Selma, but in Atlanta, we met with and had dinner with Shirley Franklin, uh, former mayor of Atlanta, who has been to the Tarleton State Campus for a civil rights commemoration a few years ago. Uh, and she was, she's just a dynamic personality who was in Washington, D.C. Uh, for the March on Washington uh, when Martin Luther King, John Lewis, and many others spoke there. But one of the things in connecting this to John Lewis was the opportunity to walk across the bridge. And if you saw the video the other day, and if you haven't seen that, I would, I would, uh, I would send you to that on, on the internet, is to look for the crossing of the bridge where uh, the, the horse and the carriage that was carrying his uh, 
coffin draped with the American flag uh, that crossed the bridge. Uh, and here, as John Lewis, one last time, as he has done for so many years to commemorate uh, the march to Selma and the, and the bloody Sunday where uh, he, his skull was cracked, where he was beaten, uh, as he and others started that, that march to advocate uh, for voting rights. And it was just a, a beautiful uh, day. It was a, a beautiful setting and it was very, very powerful uh, to see uh, that horse in that carriage stop middle of the bridge, uh, which has a, a very beautiful view, uh, by the way. Uh, and, and, to, and to know, and, and, I, and when I looked at it, I was not only you know, thinking about John Lewis, I was thinking about things that he's written and things that he's done, but I was thinking about, I've, I've stood there and, and stood there to purposefully and intent, intentionally uh, in order to, to connect myself in what limited way that I could. Okay? Not, you know, I, I didn't grow up there. I, I wasn't there when, they, when the march happened. Uh, uh, so con connection is much more through reading and, and through experiencing, but actually being on the place, which many would say is sacred ground. Here, here was a place where people stood up uh, against oppression. People stood up uh, against those who would say that they were not equal. Uh, and people marched in order to have the right that is guaranteed them by the Constitution and the right to engage politically uh, and to vote. And, it, and so I encourage you to watch that video, uh, uh, especially if you've been there. But even, even so, it was a very, very uh, unique moment in time. And it really took me back to that day that we were with those students. And after vis visiting the uh, Voting Rights Museum, uh, we, we uh, drove across the bridge and we parked and, and we took that walk. We walked uh, over that bridge uh, across to the point where those marchers were met uh, by police officers uh, at that time who were ordered to stop them, uh, to not let them continue. And of course, we know the story. Uh, if you don't, you need to, to learn about this because it is a turning point in the civil rights movement that led to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. And that was when uh, those people reacted nonviolently. They didn't fight back. Uh, they, they, they stood their ground. They, they ran. They, they moved away from the force that was being used against them. And this event was captured on television. There were reporters and TV cameras there and broadcast not just around the nation, but around the world. And this led to, to, to thousands of people flooding into Selma and Montgomery in order to support what was happening there and thus to put pressure on not just the state, but the federal government to, to move forward uh, with the passage of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, John Lewis was was at the front of that, and, and that really, in addition to uh, uh, speaking with Martin Luther King uh, on the March on Washington, uh, this his leadership of the Student uh, Nonviolent uh, Committee, uh, the, these things led, really thrusted him as a young man in his early 20s into uh, the front lines of the civil rights movement. And since that time, he has, he has carried that torch. Uh, he has been not just as an advocate and a, as, as someone engaged in the, the struggle for civil rights, but of course being elected eventually to Congress in the House of Representatives, serving 17 terms in Congress as, and, and always being one that was in the forefront uh, of the, the fight for equality. And, and so I, I bring that to our attention today. And, and, and one of the reasons why I do this is I look back and, and one of the things that, that we all are shaped by is our education. As we're growing up, uh, our, what we learn in, in, our, in school, in grade school and moving into high school and even into college. And I, I have to admit that, that the civil rights movement itself and, and people like uh, John Lewis were, were, were people that I was not engaged with until later in my life. And, and one of the reasons for that, and, I, and, and I, this is where I issue a note of, of, of caution, but advice and encouragement to all of us, is that uh, I look back at the, at the education that I have, uh, that I had, and I, I would say at this point in my life that, that a lot of that was not stressed as much as it should have been. There was not enough 
attention given. And of course, I was in grade school within a, you know, a decade uh, after the height of the civil rights movement uh, in high school in the early 80s. Uh, but even in that, that period here within then 20, 15 to 20 years, uh, the attention was just not given to how significant this was in the history of our country. And of course, as someone that has continued on with my education and has engaged with these kinds of issues, I've been a student of, of politics and, and religion and politics and other areas, uh, this has become more and more real to me in, in, in that uh, this has to be a critical part of, of the education of any person, any child, any young person in this country, just simply because of what it helps us understand about the struggle that we have had to see equality and freedom for all. Uh, I think I grew up in an era when uh, that was just, it was just accepted that that was there, that, that these, it, it, there wasn't a lot of controversy or debate about what has happened in the past and, and, and there wasn't a lot of focus on the struggle. It was, hey, we have these ideals, they're there, they're available. Uh, and in the sense that as you grow up and you're socialized by these, what you learn and so on, that well, it's always, it's been that way. It's always been that way. Uh, and, and it's not. Uh, I think when we really engage with the history of this country, we begin to see that we were very far from the realization of those ideals in the late 18th century, and that we, we, we came, we started to move and we, we struggled and we struggled. We began to make significant progress in this country in the 1950s and 60s. We've made a little more progress since then, but I think as we see with some of the issues today in terms of racial justice, other challenges uh, that are going on in our society, um, other uh, structural issues uh, that are there, uh, that um, as we've talked about with the, with the monuments, I mean, an African-American walking into a courthouse and having to pass a symbol of a war that was fought primarily over slavery. I think that in and of itself shows us that there are things that we have not dealt with, that there are issues that we have not confronted about our history that are obstacles to freedom and equality and justice uh, for all people. Uh, and, and so what I'm, what I'm saying in this and coming to this is that, that this time over the past week and reflecting on John Lewis, on reflecting on the things that he accomplished and did and, and just the, the, the heroic effort he made on behalf of civil rights, uh, it, it, it has really affirmed to me our need to be much more engaged with that era of our history. Uh, because then it helps us to, to really look further back and understand the struggle, the challenges, uh, the issues that have been in front of us, many of which are still there that we need to confront and that we need to address and to do it in a way that respects those ideals, recognizing the, the human dignity and the, the value of each person, no matter what their race, being able to uh, sit down together and dialogue about what these things mean for each of us individually and how that impacts our communities. Those are, those are very critical things that, that we, we need to do, we have to do uh, in order to, to get beyond uh, some of these things that we still continue to struggle with. And I think John Lewis really left us to do that task. He, he left us in his parting words uh, and I would encourage you to read some of the things he, he has written. I'm in the process now of going back and, and reading one of his books uh, that was published a few years ago uh, that, that focuses on uh, the lessons that he's learned uh, and the things that he, he, he says that we all need uh, in order to uh, engage with these issues. Uh, the book Across That Bridge, Life Lessons and a Vision for Change. But before he passed, uh, he penned an editorial that was published this past week. And I think the, the final words of this editorial really kind of encapsulates uh, some of the things, the charge that he gives to us and the work uh, that is still left to be done. And so in the closing part of the show today, uh, in honoring the memory of John Lewis and in recognizing uh, his life and his work and his heroism, uh, I want to uh, read these words uh, that he left us. Uh, this is his editorial that he wrote entitled, Together You Can Redeem the Soul of Our Nation. And these are the final three paragraphs. 
You must also study and learn the lessons of history because humanity has been involved in this soul-wrenching existential struggle for a very long time. People on every continent have stood in your shoes through decades and centuries before you. The truth does not change, and that is why the answers worked out long ago can help you find solutions to the challenges of our time. Continue to build union between movements stretching across the globe because we must put away our willingness to profit from the exploitation of others. Though I may not be here with you, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I have done all I can do to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last, and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. Thank you, John Lewis. That's all I have today on politics, and we invite you to join us right here noon on Sundays each week on 90.5 KTRL, that is 90.5 FM, tarletonradio.com, or listen after the show on SoundCloud or where you get your podcast, and look and join us on Facebook for relevant articles and other information about our guests. Until next week, this is Eric Morrow with On Politics, and we'll look forward to being with you again soon. Thank you. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.